several men in the locker room of a private club that just completed an exercise class and they were getting cleaned up. Suddenly a cell phone that was lying on one of the benches started to ring. Well, a man reached over and answered the phone and here was the conversation. The man said, hello. The woman said, hi, it's me. And the man said, hi. And she said, I, I hope your workout went well. I stopped at the mall and you remember that beautiful coat I've been looking at? It's on sale. $1,500. Can I buy it? And the man said, well, if you really like it, okay. The woman said, oh, thank you so much. And on the way, I stopped by the Mercedes dealership. You know, we've got this old BMW we've been thinking about trading in. You know, it's five years old now. And the new, the new Mercedes, I, I looked and $80,000, all the options you could ever want on it. The man said, well, I guess for that price, if it's got all the options... And the lady, well, great, great, thank you. And the realtor called this morning. You know that house we looked at last week? You know, it's got the big acre of park, park uh, area and the English garden and the pool in the back. Remember that? He said it's on, it, that they've lowered the price to a million three. The man said, wow, that's, uh, if you want to put an offer in, at least start at a million twos, be my advice. Said, oh, great. Sweetie, thank you so much. I'll see you later. Bye. The man held the phone up and yelled around, does anyone know who this phone belongs to? <laughs> so, I love spending other people's money. I mean, our, our oldest daughter is having a house built, and she's going through that whole process. And my wife loves looking through the Internet and saying, Aubrey, look at this. You should do this. You should, you know, I just, Vicki loves spending Aubrey's money. I mean, hey, she spent ours for several years. <laughs> But I listen to this, I read this story, it's funny, it's comical, but, you know, if you're not careful, you, you hear those prices of things, and you go, wow, that's out of my league, that, you know, and we start comparing what we own to what they own. Well, that kind of comparison will lead you to a feeling of jealousy or envy, and those of you that are worried about that, don't. I'm not teaching about that today. That kind of comparison, that's another topic. Today's comparison... I want to look at the kind of comparison that makes us feel inadequate. It makes us feel inadequate, incapable of taking on a task. You know, I think as Christians, we all have that little voice in the back of our head you know, where God's saying, you know, you could step out and do this, or you could volunteer to help with that, or there's this need that you... And, you know, it's easy for us to look around when, we're, when we hear that and we go, well, you know, so-and-so so much more gifted in that area than I am. Or you know, they've just got talent. They're capable. They've proven it before. I, I think they should do this, and I shouldn't. You know, we've all got that, that thing that we struggle with. I say we all do. I do. <laughs> that is something I've struggled with my whole life, I'll just be honest, is comparison with other people. And I think, I hope, well, I shouldn't say I hope that some of you are struggling with it too because it's not fun. <laughs> But I hope if you are, that this lesson will help you today. But, you know, I, just an example. I had some structural engineering classes in college, and I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the building kind of thing. Never used it in my entire working career, but I still like, like it. And so I loved going to the Science Channel and watching the shows like Impossible Engineering, where they show all these masterpieces that people develop. And, I mean, there was a 700-mile-long railroad through the mountains of Tibet, and 
reaches altitudes of 17,000 feet. They had to worry about workers in that low oxygen environment. They had to worry about building on permafrost and just all the environmental things. And you know, I look at that and I go, wow, that's just awesome. My brain can't comprehend. I don't measure up. I'm struggling to get baseboard around the walls in my basement. You know, it's like that's my level of thinking. I could never do what they do. That's the kind of comparison I'm talking about today where we look at people and we go, you know, I just feel inadequate. I hear them talk about their life. They've got these funny stories. You know, he, he just he, he can control a crowd when he's talking. I don't think people are interested in me. Or, you know, you, you look at a visitor across the auditorium and you go, wow, somebody should talk to them. I hope so-and-so does. He's really outgoing. He always knows what to say. And we don't do it. That's the kind of comparison I'm talking about today, where we just look at ourselves compared with other people and feel inadequate. Now, why do we do that? Why do we compare ourselves? Well, at a very deep human level, American psychologist Leon Festinger is credited with developing a concept he called social comparison theory. And what he said is we have just an inward, innate need to evaluate ourselves. But you can't evaluate something without something to compare it to. Like for instance, you're sitting in these nice padded chairs. Some of you are probably comparing these to your, your recliner at home, going, man, these things just aren't measuring up. But others of you have been here long enough like I have that you compare these to the old folding chairs. Those wood, I mean, especially those old black plastic ones that I feared them cave, you know, it's like, these chairs are awesome. So, you know, you've got to have a standard to compare to. And so Festinger said that people need that standard, and it's just natural. You compare to other people. So he said we measure ourselves in relation to other people. It's a reality. It's what we all do at times. And it's, but what we need to realize is there's a danger involved when we compare when we compare ourselves with other people, there's a danger involved. And that danger can go one of two ways. One way is we compare ourselves to other people and go, wow, that guy's really messed up. I'm glad I'm not like him. That's an ego issue. Not today's topic. Relax. I'm zeroing in on this one topic. The second thing that happens when we compare to other people, we compare what we see them doing at their best with what we do at our average or our worst. And they always look better than we do. You know, it's just, we don't compare apples with apples. We compare apples and oranges. It's like a right-handed person trying to do things left-handed. Um, a couple of years ago, I had my right shoulder operated on and there was a few weeks I had to do everything left-handed. Brushing my teeth left-handed. I refused to do it in front of anybody. It was comical <laughs> how uncoordinated I was. But I came with, okay, and we've heard of people that are ambidextrous, right? You can use both hands equally well. My word of the week this week I came across, ambisinister, clumsy or unskillful with both hands. <laughs> ambisinister. Use that in conversation this week. Just come up to somebody and go, you know, the older I get, the more ambisinister I'm becoming. Just see where the conversation goes. But it's, we compare ourselves to others best. And, you know, the reality is there's only one best in any category. You know, I mean, there's 
most of the work in the world, the vast majority, is done by people that aren't that ultimate best. Um, but for us, when we compare that way, it becomes an issue of withdrawal. When we compare to other people's best and we look at what we're capable of, it becomes an issue of withdrawal. We just want to withdraw and not take part in things. We want to withdraw and not be involved because we don't feel that we're up to their standard. That comparison is really a recipe for unhappiness. Theodore Roosevelt, former president, once said, comparison is the thief of joy. Well, Mark Twain heard him say that and he said, no, no. Comparison is the death of joy. When you spend your time comparing your, yourself to other people, it kills the joy in life because we can always find somebody we don't measure up to, right? We can always find that person. So there's a danger when we compare, but we can avoid that danger. And I, there's two thoughts here I want you to see at opening up the lesson on how we can avoid that danger. We need to realize, first of all, There's one thing that you're better at than anyone else. Every one of you in here, I can guarantee there's one thing you're better at than anyone else, and that is being you. You're better at being you than what anyone else could be. Psalm 139, David, this passage where he wrote about God saw him before he was even formed, while he was in his mother's womb. And it says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God formed each one of us. He knew us before anybody else knew us, before we were born. And he knew what he made us to do. And what God made you to be, only you can be. So when we're tempted to compare, we need to remember there's one thing I can do better than anybody else can do, and that is be me. If you don't like me, I'm sorry. I'm being me. (laughs) No, but that, remember that when we compare. Somebody else is better at me than this thing, and somebody else at that thing, and somebody, but I'm me as God made me. And if I allow him to control me, that's what he wants me to be. The second thing that will help us to avoid the danger of comparison, this is a quote from a man named Bob Goth, American author, founder of a nonprofit organization. He says, we won't be distracted by comparison if we are captivated with purpose. He said, we won't get distracted by comparing ourselves to other people if we're captivated by the purpose that we're pursuing. So captivated by purpose and being ourselves. I want us to keep that in mind as we go through this lesson today. Because I want us to look at three characters from the Bible, three characters we've heard of. We've heard their names many times, but we really don't know them. It's those three disciples way down at the end of the list. Turn to Mark chapter 3, if you will. Um, The disciples are listed in the Bible four times. All 12 are listed in Matthew chapter 10, Mark chapter 3, and Luke chapter 6. Then Acts chapter 1 The 11 remaining disciples are listed after uh, Judas Iscariot is gone. And so in all these lists, there's kind of a familiar pattern as we go through it. So let's read here in verse 16 of Mark chapter 3. He, referring to Jesus, he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that means son of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. So everywhere they're listed, there's this pattern. Peter is always first. 
Peter's just like the designated leader. He's the boisterous, outgoing, strong, charismatic person. Judas Iscariot's always last, obvious reasons. James and John come next. They're, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. Just gives you this feeling they were strong, bold personalities. And along with Peter, those three were like the, the inner circle. They did things with Jesus the others didn't. Then next is always Andrew and Philip. They're well known for bringing people to Jesus. Andrew, in John chapter 1, it's recorded he's the one that brought Simon Peter to Jesus. He went and found his brother Simon and said, hey, I've met the Messiah. Come and see. And he brought Peter to Jesus. Uh, Philip, also there in John chapter 1, is recorded as bringing Bartholomew or, or Nathaniel, both names for the same person, brought him to Jesus. And he became a disciple. Uh, Andrew's the one that brought the young boy of the loaves and the fishes to Jesus so he could feed the multitude. Peter is known as spreading the God. I mean, Peter, Philip. Spreading the gospel, he, in Acts chapter 8, he was preaching in Samaria, and there's the, where he led the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord and, and was baptized. So Andrew and Philip are well-known. Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, is known as the, for his prejudice. When Philip first went to him and said, Hey, I've seen the Christ. It's Jesus from Nazareth. And Bartholomew's response was, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he had that little tinge of uh, prejudice in him. And Philip said, come and see. So Bartholomew went with him. He met Jesus, and he followed him. So he overcame the prejudice and believed. We hear about Matthew a lot. He's the tax collector, the, the Jew who had turned to an employee of Rome. And we know from the story of Zacchaeus, tax collector could be pretty profitable because there weren't a lot of rules as long as Rome got their money. So Matthew, he left it all to follow Jesus. Uh, there's Thomas, Doubting Thomas. We know of him and the doubts he expressed about the resurrection and how that turned to belief when he saw Jesus himself. Those we know a lot about. But we get down here to this position, Numbers 9 through 11. You know, that's an awkward position in any list. You know, you've, you've named all these people, and it's just like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm not going to listen anymore. You know, there's a reason that... If somebody's going to give you a top 10 list, that they start with number 10 and work down to number one, they want to keep your attention. If you start with number one, a lot of people, when you get to about five, six, okay, I've heard all the good ones, and they tune you out. And so these three guys down at the bottom of that list of disciples, you know, they could have, could have had that feeling. You know, I'm just here to fill out the number. You know, I'm just, I'm just kind of a hanger-on. And to make it worse they had to share a name with somebody that was more famous. I mean, Simon the Zealot in the shadow of Simon Peter, you know, the, the leader of the group. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, which throughout church history, he came, became known as James the Less. And he's got to share the name James with the son of thunder. And then, of course, Thaddeus, his real name was Judas. Judas, the son of James, he's referred to in some places. Well, you don't want the name of Judas. So these three shared names with people that were more famous even. So how easy would it be for them to just feel like, man, I'm a forgotten person in here. And this obstacle of comparison could sprout up and cause them to try to back down, cause them to become just, I just want to fade away. 
But I want us to look at each one of these three today because there's things we can see in them where they overcame this obstacle and where they can teach us things to help us find our place in God's plan. So we start with Simon the Zealot. Simon's listed four times in the Bible. It's the four lists of disciples. That's all we know about him from the Bible. But out of, the, out of his position in there, we know he was a disciple. We know he followed Jesus. The only other thing we know about him is that they always call him the Zealot. The Zealot. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Israel at that time, there were four groups that, to make it, you know, where we understand it, I'd call them political parties. Because you know what political party is, Democratic, Republican, Constitution Party, whatever. It's groups of people that have a common belief in how the government should be run. Well, these four groups in Israel at that time, they each differed on how they thought the country should be governed or how they thought they should respond to Rome as it ruled. So these four groups, the first is the Pharisees. Heard a lot about them throughout New Testament times. They were religious, ultra-conservatives. They were distinguished by the fact they strictly adhered to the law, not just the written law, but oral law that had been added to it, traditional teachings of their forefathers. They had expanded the law to where it was extremely difficult to live by, and so they gloried in their ability to do so. And, they, and they, uh, their hope for the future was to get along with Rome, just kind of ingratiate themselves with the Roman leaders, to show their religiosity and bide their time until the Messiah came, which then they rejected when he came. So, the Pharisees. The Sadducees were religious conservatives who accepted only the written law of Moses. They didn't expand it like the Pharisees, and their hope wasn't to get ingratiated with the Romans, but just to kind of lay low and out of sight as much as they could and bide their time. The Essenes, like the Pharisees, they meticulously observed all the law of Moses, the Sabbath, ritual, purity, everything. But unlike the, the Pharisees, the Essenes didn't want to get involved with how things were run, with all of this that was going on. And to, uh, to separate themselves from the unholiness that they saw around them, the Essenes moved out to the desert and lived in caves and lived in isolation from the rest of the country in order to avoid the uncleanness. The Zealots is the fourth one. This is where we find Simon. The Zealots were an aggressive political party whose concern for the national and religious life of the Jewish people led them to despise the Romans as rulers, but not just despise the Romans, to despise any Jew who sought peace and reconciliation with the Roman Empire. They wanted to overthrow them and have a free Israel. Now, of these four groups, none of them liked, liked Rome. Nobody liked Rome. But in your notes, I put this because it sums up a lot of what Simon was. Nobody liked Roman rule, but the zealots hated it. The zealots hated having the Romans rule over them. In some circles, they were known as assassins because they would hide in crowds, waiting for a chance to attack and kill any Roman they found. And that passion against the Romans often extended to other Jews who sought peace with the Romans. And, you know, like the Jewish tax collector working for the Romans, like Matthew. So now suddenly in this list, we see we have Simon, the zealot, I hate Rome and everything. And Matthew, I work for Rome. There you have it. They were together in this small group that traveled together. 
Just, they walked long periods of time together. They ate together. They slept close to each other. Undoubtedly, through the time they spent listening to Jesus talk and the time they spent walking, they had all kinds of conversations and discussions on various topics. Simon, the passionate Jew, uh, zealot. Matthew, the hated employee of the Roman Empire. But there's no record in the Bible. There's no record in extra-biblical history. Wow. Extra-biblical historical literature. From that time, there's no record ever of them having a confrontation or them any discord between them. You know, Jesus healed the son of a Roman centurion, and Simon didn't walk away. He didn't leave. So obviously, you know, as much as I had you fill in that blank that he hated the Roman rule, the other thing about Simon is that obviously his relationship with Jesus had changed him. Something in that relationship changed Simon. He didn't lose his zeal. Everywhere he's referred to, he's still called Simon the Zealot. He's never Simon the former Zealot, or he's never Simon, not Peter. He's Simon the Zealot. Even in Acts 1.13, the final listing of the disciples, he's called Simon the Zealot. And there in the upper room, we're told in Acts 1.14, all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. He was still there. He was still called the Zealot, but they were in one accord, joining together in prayer. So he's still passionate, still Simon the Zealot, but something had changed. He'd learned that he could be passionate. He'd learned that he could be who God made him to be with all his passions, his desires. But he could do that holding his passion and submission to a greater cause. He became captivated with the cause of Christ. And that caused him to learn to hold his, his passions and his zeal in check for the cause, for the, for the uh, greater good. So Simon learned a very simple lesson to say, but a very difficult lesson to live. He learned it's about him, not about me. Simon learned it's about Jesus. It's about him. It's not about me. In John 3, um, we see this. This is a story of John the Baptist, but it's on the, it, it brings home this same topic. John chapter 3, John the Baptist has just uh, baptized Jesus. And Jesus is now fully entering his role as teacher and, and, you know, traveling the countryside. And John's disciples come to him, John the Baptist, and they came to John and said to him in verse 26, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John the Baptist's disciples came to him and said, you know, You've been baptizing people, and you've been leading this cause, but now you baptized this guy named Jesus, and now he's baptizing. People are following him instead of you. What's happened? And John says in verse 28, he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And then in verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And that's what Simon learned. He learned it's about him. Him and his cause must increase. It's not about me. I'll play my role, but I must decrease. It's him that we must glorify. So Simon learned a valuable lesson. He learns 
as, as we need to, I need to keep being what makes me unique. I need to keep being how God designed me with the abilities and the passions and the thinking patterns and whatever God made me to be. But I need to use those and channel those to bring glory to him. I need to not worry about making a, a name for myself or getting credit for what's done. Because the credit and the glory and the doing is all for him. And that's what we can learn from Simon, the zealot. And how he learned to channel himself for the cause that captivated him. And that's the cause of Christ. So that's Simon. The next one in the list, James, the son of Alphaeus. Or as church history records him, James the less. And, okay, let's just get it out of the way. If you want a guy that's got a hurdle uh, to go over for you know, comparison, call him the less. Now, no historian that I referenced has any idea why he was called that. Was he smaller than others? Was he younger? Did he lack strength? Was he less gifted? Was his family of a lower status? Did he just you know, have that meek, withdrawn personality? I mean, you know, James. He's being compared to the son of thunder. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could be it. But maybe it wasn't even that. Maybe he grew up in a family where his parents called him Little Jimmy, and it just stuck. You know, we don't know. You know, at one point in time, I'm sure it was Little Todd, because you were the youngest, right? You know. But we don't know why he was called James the Less. What we do know is that that's what made him stand out, is he was James the Less. Now, that's a perfect setup for the obstacle of, of comparison, but what we can learn from James is even with that name, even with the ridicule it could have brought, he never left. He never faded away. He didn't drop out because he felt insignificant. He didn't leave and go back home because he thought no one noticed him. You know, he's just a guy down the list. You know, he didn't leave. James learned a simple, a, another simple lesson to state. I love things that are simple to state and then impossible to live in some ways. <laughs> My mind. But James learned significance doesn't require stature. Significance doesn't require stature. For me to be significant doesn't require me to have a certain stature or status to begin with. He learned that though he was called the less, it didn't mean he was in, insignificant to Jesus. It didn't mean that, that though he may be out of sight of the crowd, down toward the bottom of the list, just one of those followers, that didn't mean he wasn't noticed by Jesus. Here in Mark, where we saw the list of the disciples, if you back up to verse 13, it says, And he, referring to Jesus, And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And then he lists the twelve. And one of those is James the Less. It says, Jesus called those whom he desired. Jesus had chosen the ones he wanted to follow him. He'd chosen the ones that he wanted to learn from him. He'd chosen this group to carry on the cause after he went back to heaven. And James was part of that group. James understood that his stature, his status, came from the company he kept. It didn't come from whatever in his background gave him the name the less. It didn't come from anything he did have or lacked having. It came from the company he kept. It came from the one who had called him. Jesus Christ had called him to be a disciple, and that brought him significance. And again, in Acts chapter 1, James the less is there when they were all gathered in one accord, 
Tradition says he went from there out into the area of modern-day Iran and spread the gospel until he was martyred for the cause of Christ. James the Less, we don't know anything else about him. There's nothing recorded, no specifics in the Bible or anywhere about him. There's no quote of his. We could flash up on the bulletin board and go, hey, we need to remember this. There's nothing about him. But we know that because he was there, the game changed. Things changed because James the Less was there. Um, the gospel we have today was passed down by James and men like him. The gospel that we have, that's his significance. His significance came from the cause he was involved in. It came from the one he followed, the one who called him. It didn't come from anything in his stature, but his significance came from the one he chose to serve. And he did it well. And we, we benefit from that with the gospel we have in our hands today. So Simon learned it's about him, not about me. James the Less learned my significance doesn't require me to start off with stature. My significance comes from the one I, that chose me, the one I serve. And that brings us to Thaddeus. Thaddeus, the man of many names. In some translations, he's called Labius. Uh, some places he's called James or Judas, the son of James. You know, at, at some point in his life, he probably decided, I just want to be called anything but Judas because of that other guy. You know, I don't want to be associated and the names he's given, labius, is a Hebrew word, uncertain meaning, but it's tied to a root that means to dry up or to be ashamed. That's your name. Thaddeus is a Greek word that comes from a root meaning heart child or mama's boy. You know, he, he wants anything other than to be called Judas. You know, so I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. It's fine. But Thaddeus does have a recorded speaking part in the Bible. In John chapter 14, it's in verse 22. And I'm to start reading in verse 18 just to give the context of what we're talking about. John chapter 14, verse 18 says, I will not, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, this is our man Thaddeus, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Thaddeus had heard him saying in verse 19, hey, I'm going to go... And the world's not going to see me, but you will. I'll reveal myself to you. And Thaddeus is saying, well, you know, why would you reveal yourself to me? I'm, I'm not really anybody. I'm just, you know, I'm just one of these people following you around, kind of hanging here. Nobody knows me. Why would you reveal yourself to me? And Jesus answers him in verse 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we'll come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is saying very simply, you know, Thaddeus says, why would you reveal yourself to me? And Jesus very simply says, because you said yes. It's just because you said yes, Thaddeus. You said yes to following me. You heard my teaching and you responded. 
You heard my teaching and you followed me. You obeyed my commandments. This shows your love for me. You said yes and followed me. That's why I'll reveal myself to you. So Thaddeus has a speaking part, and it's an important one because it's part of a conversation with Jesus where Jesus says, you said yes. You chose to follow me, and I chose to have you follow me and show you myself. And Jesus, in the following verses, goes on to teach the disciples about the vine and the branches and how if we abide in him as branches in the vine, we'll flourish and grow and be fruitful. And he went on to tell them about the Holy Spirit coming to be their helper. All these things were revealed because Thaddeus and these others said, yes, we'll follow you. Um, Jesus was telling Thaddeus and the others that his revelation to them was because he had a plan for them. And Thaddeus obeyed that plan. Tradition says he ministered in the area of Persia until he was martyred for the cause of Christ. So, common theme among these disciples was martyrdom. Uh, If you haven't picked up on that from other sources. But Thaddeus served until he was martyred for the cause. Now, the story of Thaddeus isn't recorded anywhere. I mean, go to the library, look all you want. He's not there. Uh, I mean, I, I like reading biographies. Right now I'm working on reading through the presidents. And when you pick a president you want to read the biographies of, there's multiple choices. You know, there's, there's people that loved him and uh, uplift everything he did. There's people that hated him and tear him down. You know, you've you got to try to find that scholarly person that does the unbiased. Hey, here's the facts. Here's what happened. You decide. But, well, except Millard Fillmore. Nobody wrote about Millard Fillmore. I, I don't know what he did to people, but nah, he, maybe it's because he was number 13. That's, you know, a sign. But you can go to the library and look all you want. There's not a biography written on Thaddeus or Labius or James, Judas, the son of James, however you want to look. He's not there. We don't know any specifics about his ministry. We just don't know. There's nothing big to remember about him. But even though he's mostly unseen in this story, we can learn the lesson that he learned. Thaddeus learned legacy matters more than memory. Legacy matters more than memory. The legacy of the group, the group legacy of passing that gospel down means far more than your individual memory, what people think of you. Legacy matters more than memory. Now, we may not remember anything about Thaddeus, but we've been impacted by the legacy that he and others left as they passed down the gospel of Jesus Christ. We may not remember him, but that legacy has impacted us and changed our lives. So legacy matters more than memory. Um, you know, it's only been seven years since the Royals won the World Series in 2015. A long seven years with some really bad baseball, but... It's only been seven years. So that's recent enough. I'm sure that many of us here could just start naming people on that team. Wade Davis, Eric Hosmer, Mike Moustakis, Lorenzo Cain, Alex Gordon, Salvador Perez. We could just... But would you ever come up with Joe Blanton? Pitched in 15 games, won a couple of them. Jason Fraser, relief pitcher in 26 games with a 1.54 ERA. We'd kill for that today. Alex Rios, outfielder, played 105 games, actually played one more game than Alex Gordon did that year. 40 runs, 32 RBI. 
those aren't household names. Those aren't the names that we just bring up in conversation when we think about the old days. It's just not there. But they're part of the legacy. The memory of that legacy, of that great team, that great season, the fun that it was, they're part of that. And without their part, mostly forgotten unless you go back and dig up the records, without their part, it wouldn't have been the same. And that's what we're talking about. The legacy matters more than an individual memory. And that's what Thaddeus learned and it's what we can learn. Because we don't remember Simon the Zealot, other than just if I'm pressed to name all 12 disciples, that Zealot thing bangs around in my head and I come up with it. Uh, James the Less. I remember him now because of the Less. It's, it's comical. Sorry, James. We don't remember Thaddeus. I, quick quiz without looking at the notes. Can anybody spell Thaddeus? Yeah, don't be a show-off. <laughs> but we don't remember them specifically. But we have experienced the story that they passed on, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, there's a man named Chris Freeland, pastor of the Doxology Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. It's where our daughter goes. Vicki and I, with our trips to see her, have heard him speak many times. And he, he's great at working stories in. And I'll... I've used a couple of his stories, but I've tweaked them to be more personal because I'm just better at telling them myself than other people. But this story he told was so perfect for this topic. And when he was a teenager, he tried out for the school musical. And, man, he thought he nailed that audition. He just felt great. He went home and told his parents, you know, I'll get the lead. I was great today. Well, a couple days later, when the roles were posted outside the drama office, he didn't get the lead. He didn't even get the next few minor parts. He was listed down at the bottom with the background vocals and the background dancers. And, and he was crushed. So he went to the drama teacher and he said, hey, I want to talk about my audition. I thought I was great. I mean, I thought I would really stand out and you'd notice me. And the teacher responded, oh, I did notice you. Yeah, you had a very good audition. But for this particular production, I, we just need to go another direction. And then this part, I remember, clear quote, the teacher told him, we're not here to make you a star. We're here to tell the story. Well, that's what these three guys learned. And it's what we can learn. Jesus, you know, he didn't call Thaddeus and James and Simon to be stars, but he called them to be part of the story. You know, if you ever, you know, we listen to music on the radio, CDs, Spotify, wherever you listen, and, and you know, but if you ever get a chance to listen to a soundtrack that doesn't have the vocals, you hear instruments that you didn't know were in there. There's just this background on most major uh, productions where electric guitar, yes, drums, yeah, you hear these, you hear keyboard, piano, but there's just a background of, of instruments that give it a fullness and give it a richness. And you may not pick them out, you may not ever even know specifically you know, that, there, that there was an oboe down in there. But if it wasn't there, that fullness and richness wouldn't be the same. And that's what God's story's like. Though these guys didn't stand out, Simon, James, Thaddeus, they were each an irreplaceable part of the story. They were irreplaceable, and so was each one of us. That's how God made us. Each one of us is irreplaceable. Now, Satan's going to push a lie that says you only have an impact, you're only important, 
You're only worthwhile if you're the star, if you're the one that has the most talent, if you're the one that makes the biggest splash. That's the only way you're going you're gonna to have an impact. Don't believe him. Don't believe him. No story's complete without all the parts. And those of you keeping track of blanks, I think I skipped that one. I carried away. No story is complete without all the parts. And that's th- that's the truth that God wants us to learn from these three men. No story is complete without each one of us doing the part that he created us and gifted us to do. Maybe that little voice in the back of your head is telling you, you know, you could work in the nursery once a month. Or, you know, maybe you need to talk with someone about a Discovery Hour class that needs help. Or maybe Awanas when it starts up this fall. <laughs> the Awana leaders back are going, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, you know, whatever it is, yard work, just anything. If God's, t- you know, just quietly leading you to it, don't let Satan talk you out of it because there's other people that are better. They're not better if that's what God wants you to do. Nobody can do you like you can. So don't let God, don't let Satan talk you out of it. Learn like Simon did that it's about him. It's not about me. Learn like James did that significance doesn't require stature. It comes from the one I serve. And Thaddeus learned that legacy matters more than memory. No story is complete without all the parts. So each of us has a part that's vital in the life of this church and in the ongoing life of spreading the gospel. So do your part. Don't compare. And if you, if you forget about that and start comparing, come to me and I'll tell you again because I tell myself once a week or so. Ah. Don't compare. I don't listen to me very often. No, but seriously, I, I love this lesson because it really speaks to me, and I hope it's helped some of you today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for people in your word that we have to dig a little bit to find out what their true story is and what they mean. God, we thank you for these three men and their faithfulness to you, and we thank you for the legacy they were part of and how we can learn from them. Pray that you bless and help as we go on to the worship service now. Just guide and direct in each thing that's done there that your name will be glorified.